you were here last week, we embarked on a series of two messages based on Psalm 128 and 129. I've entitled The Ways of the Lord, Part 1 and Part 2. We read Psalm 128, which states, Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Men, I would urge you, those of you who are married, to not get up in the morning and look at your wives and say, Honey, you look like a fruitful vine this morning. That might not elicit the appropriate response. Unless they take it in the right spirit, of course. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. And we discussed the blessings that ensue when one walks with the Lord. We talked about how our position to God should be one of respect and reverential awe or fear. We talked about how the ways of the Lord are described in Scripture. You can't read very far in the Bible without being confronted with the ways of the Lord. We talked about how we are to walk in the ways of the Lord. We talked about how Scripture directs us to keep the Lord's decrees and His Word, that that's a pretty huge part of walking in the ways of the Lord. And finally, we talked about how our affections, those things that we most care about, influence how we walk with the Lord. Our premise was, many times when reading about God's blessings in Scripture, our focus is on the blessings rather than the one from whom they flow. We miss the point. Blessings come as a byproduct of walking in right relationship with God. We see this very, very clearly in the book of Deuteronomy, in particular the last few chapters. And repeatedly, God states to Moses, who in turn states to the Israelites, if you listen to my voice and obey my law, then these blessings will overtake you. And, and it's, it's great. It's a lot of graphic blessings. And it goes so far as to say, see, I've set before you this day life and death, Therefore, choose life, therefore, uh, that you and your descendants may live. So our psalm this week, and we're going to carry through the theme of the ways of the Lord, we're going to pick up with Psalm 129. And at first glance, they, they seem to be unrelated. So if you'll bear with me this morning, we're going to have to dig kind of deep. So, so stick with me. Psalm 129 states, Greatly have they afflicted me from our youth. And once again, we have this, Let Israel now say, Greatly they have afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. And then we have this graphic image. The plowers plowed upon my back. They made their long furrows. The Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked, uh, the cords being a representation of the, the, the rope, the cord that would bind the oxen to the, to the harness and the yoke and the plow. 
And Psalm 129 ends with this very interesting, uh, these interesting verses, may all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. Let them be like the grass on the housetops, which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand, uh, nor the binder of sheaves his arms, nor do those who pass by say, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. And quite simply, the the picture there is that of a house, and, and perhaps... Uh, Maybe you've seen something like this in a in a photo somewhere, but uh, where the where the roof is made of thatch or, or of sod, and grass literally grows. It, it doesn't go very far because there's not a lot of depth there. There's not a lot of root, and so we could never probably glean a harvest from a rooftop. And then the habit of those who were the people of God who would just bless each other during the time of harvest. May may the Lord bless you. Well, bless you too. Bless you, brother. Right? That's kind of, we still do that today. But what it's saying is the wicked won't and don't typically. Their hearts are not inclined that direction to, to bless others and to receive blessing. As I thought through and prayed through these verses, and began to really seek the Lord with, what would you have me share today? I have to confess, um, I don't know that there was one sitting when I was working on the sermon that I wasn't, that I didn't move to weep, and 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 you'll hopefully you'll understand why. the The, the premise that I made for this sermon goes like this: It's impossible to understand, or much less walk in the ways of the Lord until we have some degree of understanding of our sin and the cost of our redemption. Now, if you've paid attention at all for the last four or five minutes, you might be scratching your head going, huh? How did you pull that out of those verses? Well, we'll go over it. Uh, Psalm 129 can be viewed in two ways, and one is the apparent way. It's firstly a, a lament during adversity, oppression from the ungodly. The history of the Israelites is, is full of persecution, uh, even to modern day. Most recently, of course, what happened in the late 30s and 40s is millions of Jews were exterminated by the Nazi regime. Throughout our history, the church has also experienced her share, fair share rather, of persecution, and still does today. Not America, we've rarely seen the kind of persecution that would cause us to be in fear of our lives unless we happen to be Americans who God has called to serve in a place where that kind of darkness prevails, where to carry a Bible, to speak the name of, of Jesus, to, to pray could cost you, if not incarceration, your life. Probably none of us in this room have experienced that to any great degree. And we probably hope that we don't which is, I think, part of our human nature. So the adversity piece is, is part of it, and I think that um, we need to understand that, that that primary piece is what's apparent. What's not so apparent, but immediately came to my mind, and maybe it came to some of yours, was the, the prophetic, messianic part of the, these, these few verses in, in Psalm 129 a forecasting of Christ and the gospel message of salvation. I, I don't know about you, but when 
the words, the plower, the plowers plowed upon my back, they made long their furrows, immediately I think about the 39 lashes that Jesus took uh, at the hands of the Roman, the Roman guard. Regarding the first viewpoint, there are a few questions we can ask. When we face adversity, external adversity, we must ask ourselves several questions which have a bearing on our walking in the ways of the Lord, I think. These are pretty common sense. Is the adversity I'm facing, is it truly external or is it because of some action or inaction on my part? Sometimes we're pretty quick to point our fingers elsewhere when the blame, if we're courageous enough to admit it, is really our own fault. And we're all too quick to cast blame and to justify. So that first question I think is important. Is the adversity I'm facing truly external, or is it because of some action or inaction on my part? Secondly, what might I learn from the adversity I'm facing? Thirdly, in the scope of eternity, how much significance should I ascribe to this adversity? So in the grand scheme of things, what I'm going through right now, it, does it really merit the amount of attention or energy maybe that I'm giving to it? Or, or maybe n- not so much. And as I found as I've gotten older, that that last piece is, is pretty important. Things that, that used to really press my buttons just, just don't so much anymore. And, and I'm, 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 I'm reluctant to ascribe too much energy to adversity when it, when it comes. But we're not going to spend a lot of time this morning on adversity, at least not our adversity. What I'd like us to spend the rest of the sermon time on is that second piece, the messianic prophecy, the forecasting of the gospel of salvation. I wrote here, when we begin to have a revelation of what Christ underwent on our behalf, Adversity, any suffering we might undergo, will seem infinitesimally minute. I'm going to read that again. When we begin to have a revelation, an understanding of what Christ underwent on our behalf, any adversity we face seems microscopic in comparison. But... But, and this is a huge, huge but, we must grapple with a very unpleasant topic. And um, I'm happy to say that we're going to grapple with this unpleasant topic for the rest of the time. You may say, oh, that's weird. No, I'm happy to say because by grappling with it, folks, we really experience the freedom and the understanding of what Jesus did. If you don't get this, you don't get the cross. If you don't get this, you don't get salvation. If you don't get this, there's no way on earth you can walk in the ways of the Lord. Not from a New Testament perspective. Not to any great degree. We have to understand the nature of sin and what it is. Today's cultural philosophical stance on the human condition is that we are all basically, deep down, good. 
and given the right set of opportunities and circumstances, we can pull ourselves out of any mire in which we might find ourselves. Our culture preaches this. Our schools teach it. We are conditioned to accept it. And if we don't, we're condemned as judgmental hypocrites. How can you say that we're bad? How dare you say that I'm a bad person? You don't have the right to say that to me. Truth is, it feels good to be told you're basically good. You're okay. Remember the book, I'm okay, you're okay? That's not biblical, folks. I mean, from a certain perspective, maybe. So uh, Proverbs 16.2 says this, and this is the verse that's going to be before you for the next few minutes. All the ways of, of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord tests the heart. All the ways of a man or woman are pure in their own eyes, but the Lord tests the heart. We like to be enamored with ourselves, to believe we are okay, even good, But I'm going to tell you this morning that this belief is a doctrine of demons. It is satanic in origin because that is not the truth of Scripture. The Bible makes it clear that we are not inherently good, but we are inherently evil. Our nature, everything about us is inclined to evil. In Genesis chapter 6, we find the introduction to the account of Noah, and this is what it says. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I'm sorry that I've made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Folks, this is man's legacy. We have no idea how vile we are to God in our natural state. He will not, he cannot approach us or draw near. You might be sitting here thinking, but now, Mark, that scripture was like back in Genesis. Like, that was like at the beginning of the Bible. I mean, certainly we've come a long way since then. Maybe, except that when his disciples were kind of quizzing Jesus on when, when is the end of the age going to take place? When will you come back? When will all this finally come to the end? And, and Jesus said this, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be when the Son of Man returns. In other words, it won't be any better. It'll be so bad that God will finally say, it's done. We're done. This is over. We have to understand above all else the depth of our sin and our depravity from God's point of view. We are not only estranged from our Creator, but we're objects of His wrath and fury. Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 3 state, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that is Satan, the spirit that is now in the war, at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. 
those are hard words, folks. Not, I promise you this is going to get better because a lot of times we come to church and we want to be inspired. Inspire me, Pastor Caleb or Blaze or Pastor Mark. We, we want to be lifted up today. I, I, I hope you will. I think you will if you'll bear with me. But, but this is the not-so-fun part we have to get through. Folks, catch this. God is pure. He's holy. He's perfectly just. He cannot and will not, will not, will not tolerate anything that contradicts his nature. He can't. He's committed to destroying evil so that ultimately it will no longer exist. Did you get that? He is committed to eradicating evil from creation so that it no longer exists. There's no way for us to conceive, no way for us to understand how awful God's wrath toward evil is and will be. Our darkest, most horrifying nightmares don't come close. And there's nothing on our own that we can do to avoid it. Left to our own, we're doomed. There's no hope. We're toast. Thankfully, Paul continues in Ephesians 2, just the next few verses, and he says this, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, this is probably not the first time, the only time I'm going to tear up during this message, so just get used to it. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this isn't even your own doing. It's a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In Christ Jesus, created in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? What does that mean, in Christ Jesus? Well, Pastor Mark, that kind of sounds like the ways of the Lord, walking in the ways of the Lord, in Christ Jesus. In Corinthians 2, chapter 5, Paul writes this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation, or she is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us, that's you and me, folks, that's the church, the message of reconciliation. What do you mean, Mark, message of reconciliation? Very simply, everything I've said, there's nothing inherently good in us. Our nature is evil. By nature, we're objects of God's wrath, destined to be object of his fury and eternal punishment. However, Because of his mercy and his love, through what Christ has done, 
He has made a way for us to become new creations, and he's given us this ministry of reconciliation where we, this is an overflow of how we live, we share it with others. Therefore, it says, it goes on to read, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal to the world through us, through your life. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He made him to be sin who knew no sin. I'm going to say it again because some of you haven't caught it yet. He made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. It takes us right back to the Garden of Gethsemane, doesn't doesn't it? Jesus prayed, my father, if this be possible, let this cup pass from me. Now, this is, this is Jesus talking. This is the one who said to the, to, the, to, the, to the Pharisees before Abraham walked with God, I am. This is the Son of God. This is the third person of the Trinity. And he's saying, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. During this time of prayer, right before he was arrested, the Bible tells us that that he was under so much stress, so much stress, he was so stressed out in anguish that the capillary blood vessels in his face burst and he sweat blood. If you can imagine, I've been stressed out, but I've never been stressed out that much. And I don't know that I know whoever has. Maybe somebody has. Why? What was in the cup? What was in the cup? Years and years ago, I was a teenager. There was a very famous Christian comedian. This guy had a powerful ministry, very engaging. Um, and, uh, and he would always go for about an hour, hour, 15 minutes, and just make you laugh yourself out of the seat. But then it would always end with a pretty strong evangelistic message. And, and this struck me profoundly because in this one instance, on this one recording, he, he goes into a very graphic representation of what happened when Jesus was arrested and, and the physical torment that he underwent. all the horrible brutality that he was exposed to. And he ended by then moving right to an appeal. I mean, if, if Jesus was willing to go through all this stuff, you know, why, why wouldn't you give your life to him? A few years ago, Mel Gibson attempted the same thing in a movie. You probably remember The Passion of the Christ. Now, I've only seen it once. Watched it one time. I know there's some that watch it every Easter, and that's okay. And it didn't, and I've always, and I honestly, if you had asked me before this week, well, why have you only watched that movie one time? I think I can answer that question now. Because the movie misses the point, just like Mike Warnke misses the point. And to be honest, and I'm, it saddens me to say this, just like so many, many ministers of the gospel who who preached from the pulpit on Easter Sunday, missed the point. 
Folks, it wasn't about Jesus getting beat up by a bunch of Romans and then crucified. It wasn't about the mockery of a trial, the scourging, the humiliation. (laughs) The truth is, if it was, why is it then for the next 300 years, believers, those who follow Jesus, would go through those things, and worse in some cases, but they would go to it with joy, singing hymns, delighted to be able to give their lives. No. It wasn't just about getting beat up beat to the point of death by a bunch of Roman soldiers. It was about our sin. It was about drinking the full cup of the wrath of God down to the very, very dregs. I know that there are mixed feelings about the whole Harry Potter series, and I'm not here to make a judgment on that today. Uh, Whether you watch it or not, for whatever reasons, that's your choice. But there is one scene in the sixth movie where um, Dumbledore and Harry 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 Potter... (laughs) Now you know how I feel about it. Harry Potter are in a cave... And they're trying to get to this, this talisman, this, this one thing. It's a locket. And for them to get to it, Dumbledore has to drink the water in this fountain. And, it, and it's clearly killing him. And he tells Harry, no matter what happens, no matter what I say, no matter how much I beg, no matter how much I plead, I have to drink it all. You have to force me to drink this. And so Harry, weeping, continued until the water was gone. And ultimately, Dumbledore died as a result of that. That's a great picture. And it gives some kind of an illustration, but but not really. Because we don't have any idea what was in that cup. Jesus took upon himself every curse, every consequence for our disobedience, every punishment designed for us that was by rights mine and yours. And he took that and no one forced him. He didn't have to have a conversation with Peter. Now, Peter, I might check out, so you better follow me so that I don't change my mind. No, he's not my will, but your will. And he drank it all the way down. And you might wonder, and if I had another hour, I would take us through some of the blessings and cursings. If you like to read a little more, you can read the last four or five chapters of Deuteronomy because they're spelled out right there. And, and folks, it's not fun. The, the curses were talking everything imaginable that you can think of. Calamity, confusion, poverty, sickness, defeat, bondage, imprisonment, everything you could possibly think of that's bad, multiply it times like infinity, and it's, it's that much worse. That's what was in the cup. I, 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 can't, I can't words fail, folks. 
That's what was in the cup. I'm pretty good. Yeah, I don't. I don't try to hurt people. I, yeah, I try to treat everyone fairly. <laughs> we have no idea. Even Jesus was approached one day and said, "Good teacher." And Jesus said, "Why do you, why do you call me good? There's no one good but God." I think he was just trying to make a point. Have we wrestled with our sin? Have we wrestled with what this is? We're so quick to look outside of ourselves and think, by comparison to other people, we've got it all together. But have you, have I, have we really, really wrestled with our sin? Have we grappled with the fact that in our normal, natural state, we are repulsive to God? And if we were to meet him in his natural state, face-to-face in his glory, we would be consumed Poof, we'd be done. There'd be no more of Mark Reeves. Boy, it really makes us think about our relationship with Christ when you put it this way. And it really should make us take a toll on everything that we do and say and profess to believe. In other words, is is the work of Christ some kind of eternal life insurance policy that we somehow do a few religious things. We go to church. Maybe we give a little bit. We help others, and our works will somehow balance the scale. Or, or we've talked about this before. If we're, if we're just kind, do good, and work hard, that, that this will kind of be enough. If this is what we believe, and our faith is based on the most arrogant kind of condescension, we might as well look at Jesus in the face and say, yeah, thanks for that. I'll work you into my life when it's convenient. That is not the gospel. We do hear a pretty graphic representation in in Isaiah, and I'm going to read all these verses because Isaiah writes about Jesus. Who has believed, this is Isaiah 53, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he, this is Jesus, he grew up before him like a young plant. Psalm 128. Olive trees, young olive trees. He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. And oh, we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, 
stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with a wicked man, with the wicked rather, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He's put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many. And still to this moment, to this moment, to this instant, right now, at whatever time it is, on September 23rd, to this moment, he makes intercession for us, for transgressors, transgressors. It is impossible to understand, much less walk in, the ways of the Lord until you and I have some glimmer of understanding of the depth and depravity, my sin, and the subsequent cost of my redemption. Only Christ, God incarnate, could have taken upon himself the punishment for my sin. He bore in his body the punishment that was rightfully mine a righteous judgment springing from a well of divine wrath and fury I never, ever, ever could have borne. And thanks be to Jesus, I never will. I'm going to read that again. It's impossible to understand, much less walk in the ways of the Lord. The ways of the Lord, this is what we're talking about, right? Until you have some glimmer of understanding of the death and depravity of your sin and the subsequent cost of your redemption, only Christ, God incarnate, could have taken upon himself the punishment for your sin. He bore in his body the punishment that was rightfully yours, a righteous judgment springing from a well of divine wrath and fury you never, ever could have borne, and if you've received him by faith, you never, ever will. Now that's worth an amen. So, how do we walk in the ways of the Lord? We've talked about it. And I dare say that it's, it's a whole lot more than just following his commands. Worship team, if you want to come on up. See, if, if, if our concept of walking in the Lord is just we just have to fulfill a few rules, then we'll miss the point completely, and frankly, our, our state of eternal salvation is in jeopardy. We walk in the ways of the Lord when we first recognize in our own state how vile we are. And I know that's not fun for you here to stand up here and some guy say, what are you just like going off and I'm a terrible person? Guys, by God's standard, right? By God's standard, you're always going to find people that, who seem to be better off and worse off than you are. That's just a universal concept on this earth. I'm talking about by God's standard. 
And if we follow that thought to its logical conclusion by his standard in ourselves, we can't get to him. But Jesus looked at that cup and said, I'm going to do it. I can imagine the father, are you sure, son? I'm not going to hold back. This is not, I'm not just because it's you, I'm not going to make this less. You're going to get the full brunt. You're going to get the full bore. You're going to get everything. My full on, both barrels. And Jesus says, bring it on. I'm ready. So, so that's why we sing, light of the world forever ring. My heart will sing, Jesus. There's no other name. It's, it's not just something that we do on Sundays because we somehow, oh, it makes us me feel good. It's because of what he did.